I will always simplify as much as possible. And usually marketers are worst at it because they have 500 tools in their tech stack. It's like you need a tool for every single touch point that the customer has. I don't think that's the case, but you need to be able to use technology in your favor because if you use it the right way, you can surprise and delight and you can be extremely creative with what you're doing, but you have to protect the sales rep too. This is Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast, here to help go-to-market leaders do one thing, stop guessing. If you're ready to unlock reality and reach your full potential, then this show is for you. I'm Danny Wasserman, coming to you from the Gong Studios. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Welcome to yet another weekly rendition of Reveal with Danny the Rev. Yes, back to you once again. Bringing to you someone who is refreshingly funny and cool about being just real when it comes to what marketing does well, sometimes what marketing does wrong. I love this guest's fresh perspective as the former CMO of Lessonly, ushering Lessonly through the acquisition from Seismic, where he has since gone on to become the CMO of Jellyfish. We got Kyle Lacey in the house. What he's going to tell you is... Well, there is a tendency to pile more sources of data, more pieces of technology to inform your tech stack and by extension, your leaders, what is and isn't going right. But he does in a moment of candor and vulnerability say, hey, there are times when he's over-rotated and we're going to learn in this episode, what are the telltale signs when maybe you've overshot the mark in the amount of data and tech that you're using to run your business and when and how to get it right. So with that said, since I'm not the marketer and you want to hear from Kyle, it's time for me to shut up and tell you to DJ, spin that. Ladies and gents of Reveal, back again for this week's episode. Man, am I out of my depth with this guest because I don't have a shred of marketing experience, but this guest, holy shit, he has seen all different dimensions, all different sizes and shapes of marketing, currently sitting as the CMO of Jellyfish, but before then, having spent time as the CMO of Lessonly during, throughout, and even after the seismic acquisition. He's also had stints at OpenView and Salesforce. Notably as well, to tell you about this guest, he's the author of three books and advises numerous other companies. If you have triangulated who I'm talking to, it could be none other than a guy who splits time between Indianapolis and Boston, which we'll have to ask him about on the episode. It is Kyle Lacey in the Gong Studios. Kyle, welcome to Reveal. Hey, thanks for having me. That was quite the intro. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Well, I just want you to feel all the warm and fuzzies as you very now, you know, disarmed, undressed with all that hype. You tell us all of your nitty gritty secrets about what constitutes a successful CMO. Kyle, I don't know the first friggin' thing about marketing. But here's my impression from the outside looking in. You're creative. You're fun. There's lots of feels that go into producing these cool campaigns and brand ads. And I also know that with MarTech, well, now all of a sudden, we have more visibility into the funnel and attribution and all these other marketing KPIs that would tell me you can't be measured against. I I don't want to use the word quota because maybe that's a little triggering in marketing, but certain amounts of volumes of leads and pipeline that you generate How do you reconcile not stifling the creativity? People went into marketing because they didn't want to go into sales, but yet still maintaining a degree of accountability. Talk us about that balance. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the the issue is that uh, in order for a company to be extremely creative and drive a brand, you have to drive revenue. 
And a marketer does not get a seat at the table, whether that's the leadership table or the board table, without owning a pipeline or revenue number, or at least helping reach that pipeline or revenue number. So that's number one. Own a pipeline or revenue number, reach that pipeline or revenue number, help the sales team do what they do best, which is 95, 100, 120% quota attainment. Once you yeah. do that, you focus the, uh, the other half of your time on trying to surprise and delight your internal constituents, which is the employees, your external, which is your customers and prospects, and then the community, um, the community that you've developed around whatever you're selling. And that's so the way that I think about it is that half of marketing's time should be spent driving revenue, whether that's net new bookings or expansion. And then the other half is spent on brand and trying to figure out how to uh, stand out and to be a little bit different in an ecosystem that's just chock full of competitors most of the time, especially in our worlds, in high growth software. The operative term I just heard you use was competitors. And I think about, we want to surprise, we want to delight. And that could be external customers, that could be internal constituents and stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And in surprise and delighting, you may lose that underlying all of that is still a competitive battle for mindshare and eyeballs and brand recognition. So where does the sense of building a team baked around all of those obligations you talked about, those revenue commitments that you guys are beholden and incumbent to, where does that fit within your overarching strategy of team construction, hiring, looking for people that recognize competition is not mutually exclusive from surprising and delighting? Yeah. So I'll give you very tactically, if you think about budget, 70% of your headcount and program spend should go towards driving demand. 30 to 40% should go towards creative projects like events, dinners, if you want to do a board yeah. game, a clothing line, whatever. Whatever, whatever thing you want to do that's a little bit different from a marketing team's perspective. And if any marketer's listening, or if you're a sales leader and you question your marketing leader, it usually comes down to an 80, 20, 70, 30 split anyway. But most of the yeah. time, marketers don't look at it that way. So for me, it's hmm. 60, 70% of that spend. And so think about a graphic designer. A graphic designer spends 40% of their 60, 40 to 50% of their time doing ads and demand gen related stuff. The other 50% could be spent on the t shirt design for the hackathon that's next week. You separate the headcount in that way so you fully understand where they're spending their most time. And then it's just about being creative with time management to say, hey, we're going to set aside time to not look at a marketing scorecard all day long, but to brainstorm about cool ideas on uh, how to make a direct mail campaign more effective because it's not just a Yeti, right? Or a t shirt. So that. You got to, so it's about budget allocation, but it's also about spending time trying to be creative as well. When those ratios are out of whack, you haven't perfectly calibrated those two spheres. What are the symptoms that manifest themselves? It's never really perfectly calibrated. <laughs> I would say, I'd say the 70 30 is probably directional, and that's about it. Um, so what happens is usually uh, you have a uh, a marketing team that's solely focused on some brand elements and not revenue, and you see pipeline um, plateauing. Mm -hmm. uh, you see BDRs overworked, or maybe the growth, the product growth team is overworked because they are responsible for driving ninety percent of the demand, or AEs are burned out because they've had to self source eighty percent of their quota. So that's usually what happens. Or you hit a growth 
you hit a gr- you stall a growth at a certain point because you haven't invested in organic or content development or anything that might come into that realm of brand and thought leadership. Got it. In striking that balance again, we know seventy thirty is directional. You're looking to cultivate this space that is energizing for the creativity while still obviously adhering to what obligations you have to the business for KPIs. I'm wondering, you know, as you think about the people on that team and their career progression, so you're at the helm, you're trying to facilitate that type of environment. What responsibilities, as you think about you being part of this larger marketing ecosystem, what are your direct responsibilities as the leaders? But then by extension for the people within a marketing team, how do they then also embody that same spirit of attempting to balance the creative with the, dare I say, less sexy, measurable? Man, for me, my responsibility is making sure that every single thing that the marketing team is doing is surface to the people who make the decisions around budget, around growth, yeah. right? Like that's my, uh, that's my responsibility is make sure I am um, shouting from the rooftops about how much work and time and energy my team is spending on X, Y, and Z. Um, from a responsibility standpoint, I think that creativity is important. And if you hire the right people, that's just a part of what a marketer is great at. The, the the responsibility of most marketers is to learn empathy for the customer. Hmm. And I, I, I don't think we do it surprisingly. I don't think we do it very well as marketers. And I mean, I'm not, I wasn't planning on shouting it out because everybody listening to this already knows how good of a tool it is. But Gong is part of that system to help my team build empathy for the customer. We listen to Gong calls every week as a marketing team for certain points in the sales cycle so that we can fully understand yeah. what the customer's talk, what the prospect's talking about. So it's, it's creativity. It's also understanding that you have to drive the same numbers that the sales team is driving. You have to own the same number because when you talk about sales and marketing budget, it's grouped together most of the time. It's a sales and marketing number. And it's really, it's fairly easy to, to budget for the sales team because it's based off of headcount and quota attainment most of the time. But marketing is a black box for most mm-hmm. people. So just make sure you are your language is similar to the sales leader. And uh, I know Udi's talked at length for a long time about how you should know your sales leader's copy order because you need to be their best friend. So alignment is important. So empathy for the customer, sales and marketing speaking the same language. And the creativity comes if you just give somebody the the opportunity to be creative. And so when we talk, going back to the budget number, 70% is driven by a number. The 30 to 40% is not driven by a number. Mm-hmm. So an example would be if you have a team that wants to do a board game and you're going to spend 10 grand on developing a board game, I am not going to come to that team six months from now and say, how much pipeline did you influence from that board game? Like who cares? You As long as you're hitting your pipeline of revenue number and you're growing, you don't question me on the cool surprise and delight thing that we did, like a Lego set or a board game or some cool digital event, because we are driving growth in the business and a rising tide lifts all ships, frankly. When you talk about empathy for the customer, I want to actually spend some time on this notion to, again, the layperson that is a buffoon with no marketing experience, let's break it down because to me, it sounds abstract. To understand this a little more for our listeners who are sellers, 
empathy for the customer. What does that look like? And what does that not look like? So maybe it's the good, the bad, the ugly. Here's a textbook example when we are empathizing with the customer. Alternatively, here's a campaign or here's an outbound effort where there was not a shred of empathy. Explain that a little more. I, I think sellers have the best view of the empathy for the prospect and customer because they're talking to them all the time. That's the main issue. I think empathy okay. boils down to a, a wrong way to do it is you produce a campaign with content and deliverables and video without talking to the customer, without, without including them in the content. Like that's the wrong way to do it. The right way to do it is to include them in everything that you're doing because they're your best salesperson. They're the ones mm-hmm. that bought, they, they bought the tool. They are using the tool. Um, so, and I, I think that, and I've been, I've been part of these teams that do this. So mm-hmm. I can't say that I've never done it, but I have done things where you produce a bunch of stuff and release it and the customer never gave their opinion on it. And mm-hmm. unless you're the end user, so I've sold to marketers for a long time and now I'm selling to engineering leaders. I'm not going to just produce content without at least trying to understand why, why somebody would want to read it. That's a vice president of engineering. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Thinking about the age old adage, oh my God, this reeks of marketing. Tell us about, have you been there? Has your team ever produced stuff that's triggered that visceral reaction from sales? And if you've gotten that pushback, what do you do? That from the sales team? Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think that when the sales team rolls their eyes is when any marketing team tries to put a process around something. Not that sales teams don't like process and it's not that you don't follow yeah. some framework when you're going through a sales journey. But if we, you know, if a rep wants to do a dinner with some uh, prospects and customers and they want to run it, they might roll their eyes when our event marketing manager wants to get involved because it's just another person that they have to manage and, yeah. and try to figure out. So I, I think that when uh, when marketing wants to control things uh, for whether right or wrong reasons is when sales and marketing tend to buy heads or, or even, even more, more uh, damning would be when uh, marketing does a bunch of stuff and then gets up in front of a room and says, look at all the great stuff we did. And the sales team is at 40% quota attainment. Okay. That's the worst well, part. That's the worst well, one. Little tone deaf. Yeah. Tone deaf. And I've been in those and I have, and I have, I've been in those rooms where teams have done that. And it's like, you can't, you can't talk about how great the MPS score was at an event. If your sales team can't figure out how to generate pipeline outside of the event that you did. Got it. In the time that you've been a marketing leader, as we talked about in the intro, you were the CMO at Lessonly and then a marketing exec via Seismic. And now you are the apex marketer at Jellyfish now. I'm curious when we consider the shelf life of originality, the shelf life of innovation, what remains refreshingly new and novel that has been compressed exponentially. And as you consider trying to both pursue the next great original thought are there any things that you've used in your playbook as a long tenured marketer that are evergreen? You can always go back to Kyle's bags of tricks or you being pushed to the limits of how creative you can be because you're only as good as your last original thought. Oh, that's a great question. 
I don't care. Honestly, I do not care on the source, the channel, or the vehicle of whatever yeah. we're delivering. Could be event, could be swag, could be uh, direct mail piece, whatever. I think personalization and creativity is what drives people being excited about something. Like there's a difference between a t-shirt with just a jellyfish logo on it and a t-shirt that was designed with something that looked like you could buy from Nike. Mm -hmm. So that, so it's, uh, I don't, I don't know if I would call it like injecting consumer marketing into B2B marketing, but that's uh, from my playbook, the, the stuff that has worked outside of just the normal organic search strategy and paid marketing strategy, you know, a, a personalized, uh, sales outreach, a personalized ad, a personalized landing page, uh, sending a gift to somebody based off of what you know about them, not just a, a t-shirt, uh, will always be a better playbook. Always. And we have the tools now to do that appropriately. And it's not necessarily ungodly expensive to do anymore. Mm -hmm. It's just about caring. It's about caring about the end user. And I don't, and the burn and churn marketing and sales, which sometimes comes with hydro software, just doesn't work as well anymore. Sales reps are drowning in tools. A study by Salesforce discovered that 65% of sales reps say they spend too much time managing their data, not enough time selling. It shows us that even though tech stacks can be a good thing, we don't want too much of a good thing. Kyle explains that managing all the tools can really slow sellers down because they have to toggle back and move between their apps, taking them longer to actually get things done. Not to mention, there's a learning curve to all those applications. McKinsey found that sellers who use multiple applications are 29% less productive than those who use a single application. McKinsey also found that vendors who use multiple apps, well, they're more likely to make mistakes. Double whammy is not the goal. We want to maximize reps' time so that they can productively engage with prospects, not interfere with them. Let's get back to Kyle and hear a little bit more about how he's overcoming this trend. You talk about, again, coming back full circle to the empathy you want to show to the customer and the personalization, how that rises above what is otherwise just a deluge of diluted, sterile, one-size-fits-all crap. Well, I want to draw a parallel between what it is that you're describing and what we've heard on the podcast. We've brought RevOps leaders in. We've brought revenue and sales leaders in. And more often than not, at their vantage point for the amount of miles that they've walked in those roles, they're trying to maintain some degree of simplicity that yeah. as distractions and alarms and other frequencies are bombarding them, a lot of what they can do best is continue to insulate their teams from the outside distractions of complexity and maintain simplicity. And I wonder if you would agree that some of what your job is is actually protecting your marketers and creatives from all of those complex distractions so that you can just fixate on empathy for the customer or personalization. Or if in fact, no, you're like, let's bring on complexity. Let's create more elaborate campaigns. Let's absolutely break through what we conceive to be possible, which flies in the face of simplicity. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, if my, if my team listens to this, they will laugh because they know what my answer is going to be. But I, the I 
I think process should be used to to free up time and energy, not create more issues with like making sure that we're focused. And I think a lot of times people just don't document well. I don't think they okay. think through the process in general and uh, complex, more complexity leads to less creativity because there's either more red tape or they don't have enough time to be creative. And I, I will always simplify as much as possible. Um, and usually marketers are worse at it because they have 500 tools in their tech stack. It's like you need a tool for every single touch point that the customer has. I, I don't think that's the case, but you need to be able to use technology in your favor because if you use it the right way, you can surprise and delight and you can be extremely creative with what you're doing. But you have to protect the sales rep too. Like I've there's plenty of there's plenty of situations where marketing ops or the marketing team has come in and said, Hey, you need to use X, Y, Z, A, B, C, D, E, F, and it's all going to hit your Salesforce dashboard and you're going to get pings and alerts and you need to know when somebody's reading an ebook and you need to know instantly when they're on chat and you need to know when they're on page seven of your digital sales room or whatever the hell else is in your tech stack. And that's when it gets too much, right? Because then you're, then it's just data and the sales rep is going to ignore it anyway. Mm -hmm. So there, there, I think there's a balance. There needs to be a balance. And a lot of times marketing does not listen to the sales reps either. They just say, Hey, wouldn't you want more data? And then they don't listen to what the answer is and they just give them more data. And I, and that's the job of RevOps. That's why RevOps is so important is to be able to balance all those different um, voices mm-hmm. and focus the go to market teams around. Um, one spear instead of like throwing 500 spears in all different directions and killing people and all that stuff. But that's a terrible analogy, but you get what I'm saying. Hopefully no salespeople or rev ops leaders were harmed in the making of those hundreds yeah. of no spears. Of yeah, no spearing exactly. of, uh, of operations people ever. Well, it's a good segue. Uh, this notion of, I don't know, deadly marketing. Uh, <laughs> any stories from your past, that reflect, oh my God, here's a textbook example where maybe I had too many spears or here's a time where the allure of MarTech was so seductive and so compelling that your blinders were on to what the human cognition of a seller could possibly comprehend and you over-rotated into too many of the alarms or too many of the alerts. Tell us a little bit about what that looks like. So back in the day when uh, the, when contact records like database database enrichment vendors were just first hitting the scene. Mm-hmm. I over-rotated on a database vendor and screwed up a lot of data for the reps. So wrong phone numbers, wrong names. We picked the wrong database vendors. So we had situations where people were calling people that had, that had not been at a company for a decade or at the worst part, they had passed away. <laughs> like, not good. That so da- the database enrichment vendors I screwed up I think twice. The other the other would be just intent vendors. Yeah, I I think that if you roll out an intent vendor the wrong way, it inundates a sales rep with too many touch points. When those vendors can be very 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 valuable, right? If mm-hmm. done appropriately, 
when if you have a buyer that's interested in what you're doing and they're looking at your pricing page, that should probably trigger some personalized piece of content that has to do with pricing and packaging or whatever. But when you when you're alerting a rep when anybody ever visits your website from an account record is crazy. That's just too much. So for me, I mean, it definitely was data database enrichment vendors. Uh, I over rotated on direct mail. We had a situation where I wanted to be really uh, creative on a Zendex user conference when I was at Lessonly. So we came up with the idea to do Zen Gardens that had the Lessonly logo on them. And they were great. And they had like a little bag of sand. And then we realized pretty quickly that nobody in their right mind wanted to take a three to five pound Zen garden with them in a conference to put on their in their baggage to go home. And so that was a situation where we 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 had to get rid of like 500 Zen gardens, which uh, did not uh, did, our karma was not very high for that year as we threw out all those Zen gardens. But so there, there's there's times when you think it's a great idea and you over rotate on it and it's just not. And then there's a, you know, you, you push in a piece of uh, technology that you didn't vet vet appropriately to begin with. You know, Kyle, when you talk about this idea of personalization and you having perhaps picked the wrong intent vendor or database enhancement vendor. Well, I'm wondering in today's day and age of marketing, where there's just a glut of MarTech, can you even attempt to, at scale, personalize, which I can appreciate as a contradiction, but can you personalize at scale without technology? Because if we're causing so many problems with being misled or distorted by tech, do we just abandon it altogether? I think that like it doesn't have to be so binary or extreme, but I'm wondering, you know, are we better served if we're trying to empathize with the customers or humanize the process? Have we lost our North Star because we've become so beholden to the tech? Yeah, I I think that some things aren't meant to scale. And would I would I rather pick 50 accounts to highly personalize outreach to than try to scale to 20,000? Yes. Like I I just think the the situations in my career where people were taking pictures and texting and 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 they were really excited to be involved with whatever thing we were doing as a company was when it was highly personalized and and we spent a lot of time on the experience. And that's you can't scale that. And you shouldn't, you shouldn't. And that's, you know, I think that's a that's that's a huge talking point right now with AI and and yeah. all of the um tools out there now for content production. And I just I don't ever want it to be a situation where you can where you think you can scale highly creative things. Because that shouldn't be the case. There is always and, a place for automation and personalization, but I would much rather spend time researching an individual and do it in a meaningful way because the the outcome after that will be so much bigger. The nostalgia that you're expressing yeah. right now for these moments or these chapters in your career where it was highly personalized. And I have to think that your customers shared in that delight. Sort of we'll affectionately refer to it as the good old days. Well, if you can't achieve that at scale, and that's just sort of an irreconcilable calculation, how do yep. we ever then maintain that special potency while still fulfilling our obligations to our shareholders and our investors? Or is that just the price you pay? As you get bigger, it becomes less personalized. 
No, it's still it's still about time management and segmentation. Like I okay. like if you if you need to reach a certain revenue number and you know that fifty percent is going to come from enterprise customers and you could be highly personalized because the deals are larger and then you've yeah. got lower market commercial customers that are more volume driven. It's a very different approach to marketing. And I would yeah. I think it's depending on the size. Like if I have a if I have a two million dollar deal in the pipeline, I'm gonna spend a little bit more time thinking about the personalization of something. Yeah. Um, but it's you know, but that's a very different thing than like a product led growth that has a freemium and free trial motion. Like you're not gonna personalize a ten like highly personalize a ten dollar a month customer. So it's okay. just you might have some product-led marketers just shaking their head if they're listening to this, but it's it's. I just don't think. I, but I've always been more sales sales uh, uh, sales led motion. Well, between deadly marketing from too many spears and then you know disenfranchising your PLG counterparts, it's been quite an inflammatory episode, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, PLG. So, sorry, PLG yeah. friends. <laughs> for what it's worth revealed does not take any stance regarding plg we remain neutral and entirely impartial about what your market looks like Dis- disclaimer. <laughs> thinking a little bit about how we wrap up every episode kyle uh there is some continuity between all of our guests but you're in a unique position as a marketing executive so i'm gonna close today's episode with two questions you get a bonus um and that's this which is the first one well, if you could describe sales in just one word, what would it be? And then by extension, since you get the bonus twofer, if you could describe marketing in just one word, what would it be? In whatever order you want, sales or marketing or marketing then sales. Do the guests, guests usually sales leaders that, that do one word for sales? Okay. There we go. Exactly. You align with them. You yourself said that you're oh, a partner of sales. I yeah, I do. You could say jerks. You you could call them assholes. (laughs) I've managed I've managed BDR teams and all that. I would say that my one word for sales is driven. Hmm. Most driven people I know have been sales leaders or account executives or BDRs, and some of the best people that I have hired and and rolled into field marketing or or product marketing were SDRs, BDRs before. I mean that that's just a it's a it's a great career start for for software. So that that was a lot more than one word. But driven would be my sales word. Uh, marketing, I'm going to go back to creative. I think the best marketer is the most creative. And uh, if you have driv- a driven sales team and a creative marketing team that understand how to align, then uh, I I think that you're unstoppable. Well, Kyle, man, between your underpinnings to empathizing with the customer and keeping personalization as your North Star in spite of all the advances in MarTech. Just want to say that how free and liberal you've been with sharing your wisdom, both for peers who sit across the aisle from you in sales, how we can best partner with you, and then for those hosts of marketers that tune in every week to listen to Reveal. Thanks for spreading the lacy gospel. It certainly has not disappointed you after what's been a career that any of us would understandably envy. Ladies and gentlemen, we are saying adieu to Kyle Lacey, currently the CMO of Jellyfish. And check out his books. He's got three of them. Kyle, where can we find your books? <laughs> you can, I mean, you can try. I've, I wrote books about Twitter, <laughs> which don't, doesn't exist anymore. But if you want to, you can look on Amazon. Um, I still think that there is some professor in South Korea that buys a lot of them every year. So they're still there. They're still out there. 
Well, if that means that Reveal is going to make landfall in South Korea, we owe that entirely thanks to Professor Lacey. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Kyle Lacey, thanks so much, Kyle. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Reveal. If you want more resources on how revenue intelligence can help you create high-performance sales teams, then head on over to gone.io. And if you like what you heard, well, give us that five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you may listen.